Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand as we continue our series, The Gospel of Luke. And I would invite the church to please turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 7, as we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. The NASB says... So he, so John the Baptist, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. So church, here is a Bible fact. John the Baptist was very important. He was critically important. Why was he important? Because he prepared the people to meet Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was the greatest human being to have ever lived. Jesus in Luke 7.22 said he was the greatest human being to ever 
walk planet Earth. And the greatest person ever was a preacher. The greatest person ever preached a sermon by the River Jordan 2,000 years ago. And the content of John the Baptist's sermon was simple. The content of his sermon was repentance. As Luke says in chapter 3, verse 3, John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Matthew summarizes the content of John's message when John in Matthew 3, 2 says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I have one point this morning. It is ridiculously simple. Are you prepared to meet Jesus? Then repent. Very simple. One point, several applications. So what is repentance? Repentance is the theme running throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It involves not just an admission of guilt or saying, I'm sorry, but repentance involves turning. It involves turning away from sin and turning to God. It involves turning away from darkness and turning to the light. Repentance is a 180-degree turn away from something to something else. That turn is 180 degrees. It's not 90 degrees. Because if you turn 90 degrees and are halfway in between sin and God, then you are wavering in between opinions. And the truth of God is adamantly opposed to double-mindedness. Repentance is a full 180-degree turn. Ezekiel 14, 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Acts 14, 15 says, We preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Repentance is animated by a deep, visceral change of being. That change of being is transformative. It's disruptive. It's radical. It is earnest, and it's accompanied by a sincere zeal for God and His purposes. Repentance involves a human element, yes, 
that involves a change of mind and therefore a change of will and a change of heart. But that human component of repentance does not happen unless God acts first and regenerates you and regenes you and transforms you. And because God is the one who acts first to transform us, we don't repent and then God begins treating us with grace. No. God begins treating us with grace, which enables us to repent. And then when we repent, God treats us with more grace. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Repentance is a gift granted by God. Therefore, no one has any room to boast. No one repents based on their own initiative. It's God's initiative. Acts 11.18, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2.25, perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And because God's grace enables someone to repent, when God commands us to repent, He knows exactly who will obey. Repentance isn't a side doctrine. It's not an accessory doctrine. It's not something extra distinct from the core doctrinal principles of the Christian faith. Because if you repent, then God forgives you, forgives you of your sins, and now you spend eternity with God. But if you don't repent, then God does not forgive you, and now you spend eternity without God. Repentance is intimately related to salvation. So all of that is what repentance is. So what's the practical application of that in real life? John tells us, John Sermon, the greatest person who ever lived, the content of his sermon in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 17, applies repentance to our lives. Verse 7 says, So John began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. This is what John was saying here. He was chastising people who on the outside seemed as if they were doing the right thing, but that doing wasn't animated by a sincere change of being. They were coming out to be baptized to save themselves from the wrath to come. But their action wasn't animated by genuine internal repentance. They, the brood of vipers, they were trying to save themselves. So here's the first application. Repentance is never done for self-preservation. 
preservation. Repentance is never done for self-preservation. Why? Because the self is the problem. And you never are going to preserve that which is corrupt. Biblical repentance teaches us that left to our own devices, we are not okay with God. Our relationship is not all right, and something must radically, drastically change. Biblical repentance teaches us that we are not found, but we are in fact lost, and the way we become found is by repentance. Biblical repentance is not driven by fear. It's driven by the fact that sin is totally and absolutely and cosmically wrong. And because it's absolutely wrong, we turn away from it and to God. Beloved, when we repent and are enabled to do so by God's grace, we realize in repentance, God saves us from ourselves. Biblical repentance, we sin not as a, we become sinners not as a function of doing, but we are sinners as a function of being. It's in our nature. It's in our warped, corrupted, fleshly bodies. And as a result of who we are, we commit sins. We are sinners as a function of being, not doing, and therefore we need a radical change to turn us from who we are. In other words, we need a radical change of being. And when that turn happens, once that change happens, when we look back on who we used to be, there is now a sense of shame. There is now a sense of humiliation. There is now a sense of sorrow. As Jeremiah says in, in chapter 31, verse 19, For after I turned back, I repented, and after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Now, in the context of our verses, Luke chapter 3, verse 7 John calls those the brood of vipers, those who are hypocritical, those who were doing the right thing on the outside, but that wasn't animated by a change of being. He calls them a brood of vipers because they wanted to preserve themselves. And here's the thing about vipers. Vipers spit out venom. And this is why venom is dangerous. It gets into your bloodstream, and then it ruptures, it lyses your red blood cells, so you can't get oxygen into your system. Venom also causes paralysis, so you can't move, and the venom eventually stops your breathing, so you die. So guess what? Vipers are not only poisoned, they are also poisonous. And if repentance is done out of self-preservation, 
and it's not done as a function of a radical change of being, then, beloved, the only end result of that false ideology is destruction. Biblical repentance tells us that we, mankind, is the problem and the solution to mankind's dilemma is God himself. And because we need a radical change of being, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does when he regenes us, transforms us into a new person. For as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Repentance is never done out of self-preservation. Second application. Repentance can be proven. You can prove it. There's evidence for it. Here's a question. Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Good. Then prove it. What does the text say? The text says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The cause, the thing that is effectual, is repentance. And what that repentance yields, the effect of the repentance, is fruit. Beloved, when we are saved, it's not just something heavenly. It's not just something spiritual. Just like our Lord and Savior Jesus, He was fully God and fully man. There was a heavenly divine component and a natural component. When we are saved then, there's a spiritual reality also accompanied by a fleshly, earthly, natural reality. So with the gift of God of repentance that's granted, that's going to yield real spiritual fruit in real life. Now, at least one person is thinking what I was thinking when I made this point. That aren't there some people who profess to be believers who make God look bad? And the answer is yes. And common sense tells us that in the 21st century, just because someone says they are something doesn't, in fact, mean they are telling the truth. Because if you have repentance, godly, biblical repentance on the inside, that's going to actually produce fruit. You can actually prove it. There will actually be evidence. The fruit, the behavioral impact of the internal repentance proves the genuineness or the validity of the repentance. And beloved, what God requires of us are less professions of faith and more production of fruit. For Jesus Christ even says, you shall know those who are mine by their fruits. A bad tree can only produce bad fruit because a bad tree has a poor anchor and a poor system of nourishment. Good fruit can only be produced by a good tree. And repentance actually means changing a tree at the root, which everything that stems from it will now be effectual and come from a proper anchor and system of 
nourishment. Now I keep on saying fruit, bearing spiritual fruit. Do I mean apples? Do I mean pears? Do I mean oranges? No, I mean spiritual fruits. And the list of spiritual fruit can be found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. But the most important biblical fruits that we ought to bear is love. How do we know that? Because the two most important commandments in the entire Bible involve love. Love of God and love of neighbor. So repentance produces fruit, and the most important fruit is love. So what is biblical love? Biblical love has nothing to do with what secular culture regards as love. Secular culture says that love is something passive. You fall in love. You're walking around one day and you fall in a hole called love. Now you're in love. It doesn't work like that. Because if you can fall into something, you can also fall out of something. Biblical love is a purposeful act of the will. It's a purposeful act of the will that acts for the spiritual benefits of the object of that love. Biblical love may involve emotion, but it doesn't necessarily have to. It's an act of the will because you know with biblical love what matters isn't the present. What matters far more is eternity. And so you act for that person's eternal Benefit. Do you know what John the Baptist is doing in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 17? By calling people a brood of vipers and correcting people, he's showing them love. He's telling people the truth so he can tell people who are walking the crooked path, the path in which you are going is crooked, and he can save others who believe the crookedness is true from walking down a path to their own eternal detriment. Third application. Repentance is personal. Repentance is personal. Verse 8 says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. When John says, do not begin to say, that's a Semitism. That's a figure of speech. What he's saying is, don't even begin to think that because of who your mommy is, that because of who your daddy is, that means now you are okay. Because, beloved, here's the reality. If we have faith in biology, if we have faith in lineage, that is actually spiritual suicide. Because now you're putting faith in who your parents were. Now you're putting faith in who you're associated with. Now you are putting your faith in something other than Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist was a Jew. He was looking at other Jews in the face and was telling them, biology doesn't matter. Do you know what that means? 
that biology doesn't matter, that if God chose a stone to be his child, that stone would now be a son, would now be a daughter of, of God. Therefore, because biology doesn't matter, repentance is not only personal, but it's not limited by your DNA profile. Repentance is personal because we stand before God as individuals. The fourth point, repentance is urgent. Verse 9, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is what this verse means. John is describing a tree that is unrepentant. And a woodsman has been working at that tree, cutting. And now the woodsman is one blow, one strike away from knocking that tree down and that tree being consumed forever. And the woodsman has the axe in his hand and is about to strike. And he's imploring people. He is the voice crying in the wilderness saying, repentance is urgent because the axe head is about to strike. Here is the point. There is no way of fleeing from the wrath to come but by repentance. It is desperately, urgently needed because the axe is about to fall. Because once that axe strikes, there are no more pleads for mercy. There are no extensions. There are no granting two or three more weeks to get everything together. Repentance is urgent. Psalm 95, 7 to 8 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, not tomorrow, not next week, not 2019, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Beloved, someone may think that you have time, but my text does not say you have time. The devil loves telling people you have time. The devil loves telling people you can wait. The text does not say you have time. The text says now is the time for repentance. You don't have control over your own life. God does. For as Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So recently, my father had surgery for a cancerous growth in the back of his mouth. And I remember the day when my mother, my brother, and myself, we were with him in the, the preoperative room. And the nurse who was gathering his medical history, she asked a strange question. She said, she asked my father, do you have any religious or cultural concerns today? 
And I said, that's a strange question because one would presume if he did have a concern, he wouldn't be there. But she continued asking the questions and they took my father to the operating room. Now, by God's grace, God delivered my father through the surgery, throughout the course of this hospital, and he is now improved. He is now well. So the story had a positive ending, but throughout the entire 12 hours we were all there that day, that question kept on reverberating through my mind. Do you have any religious concerns today? Because as I was sitting there contemplating, thinking, I thought to myself, today is a day where things could actually not turn out okay. It was a real possibility. I had a real, genuine, religious concern. And then I realized, I thought about it more and more, in spite of the fact that there was a possibility I could have lost my father. I could have lost my pastor. I could have lost my role model. I could have lost my mentor. This was a man who for decades was bearing fruit. This was a man who had genuine repentance in his heart, which bore fruit. So I kind of snapped out of it and said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? In the end, whatever happens to my father, he's going to be okay. Because I knew my father. But more, far more important than that is that God knows my father. However, friend, wherever you are in the world right now, here's the religious concern that I have. I don't know you, and my concern is that God doesn't know you either. My concern is that you may actually think you are saved, but you're not which is the most cataclysmically dangerous position you can be in. So friend, here's the question. Five seconds after you die, where will you be? Before your family even knows that you're gone, who will you be looking at when you open your eyes in eternity? Repentance is urgent. So I say this in love, friend. If there is an evil bone in your body, now is the time to break it. If there is an evil thought in your mind, now is the time to burn it. And if there is a warped desire in your heart, now is the time to crucify it because repentance is urgent. And anyone who doesn't will be cast into the fire, never to be heard from again. Jesus may not want to give you a hug and a flower. He has the rod of iron in his hand, as well as the winnowing fork. And when the chaff goes away, it will be a fire that cannot 
be quenched. Repentance, beloved, is urgent. Therefore, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What happens next? Verse 10, the people, the crowds, hear the man of God. They hear the word of God. They recognize the truth. They recognize eternity is at stake. Recognizing the truth of God's word, they now take action and respond to the word of God. Verse 10 says, And the crowds were questioning John, saying, Then what shall we do? Here's the fifth application. Repentance is a command. It's not a multiple choice question. You don't have any options. You can't go home and think about it. You don't have until tomorrow. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Revelation 2.16 says, Therefore, repent. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Think about it less, obey more, and repent. So what shall you do? What shall I do? What shall everyone in the world do? The answer is simple. Repent. Turn from your ways and repent. Now, Someone has a question. They're asking themselves, okay, Bible preacher, what if I don't feel like repenting? What if I don't, in my heart of hearts, desire to change? And my response is, thank you for being honest. Because the Bible tells me The problem is never the lack of light. The problem is the love of darkness. Now I just finished saying repentance involves a deep, visceral, radical change. I agree with you. If you delight in darkness, you can't change yourself. You can't work yourself up into repentance. Only God can do that. So here is my advice. If you don't feel like turning, you begin praying every morning, every afternoon, every evening, and you ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sins. And let me tell you something, friend. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sins, you cannot rest. You can't sit still. There is nothing that can deter you from turning all the way way around and repenting. Because repentance is a command. Sixth application. Repentance is a lifestyle. Verse 10 to 14. 
And the crowds were questioning John, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. What John is now explaining here in applying repentance to three different groups of people is that repentance would not be an event. It would not be an isolated episode that happens once, but rather it would be a deep visceral change which now has perpetual effects throughout life in the day-to-day affairs of human beings. Repentance is a lifestyle and therefore it bears fruit not only in your vertical relationship with God, it also impacts and bears fruit with individuals and society at large. Because once again, our repentance is not only God-centered, but it comes from a spiritual source in God, which then animates how we treat and deal with other people. It's God-centered and it's other-centered. There's a political maxim going on right now that says, let's make such and such great again, which I don't like, because you could be a great tyrant. Here's an adage for you. Let's make the world good again, based upon God's instruction. Micah 6a tells us, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. How would we do all of those things? The answer is simple. We repent. And with repentance in our hearts, repentance saturating our minds, that's going to affect how we treat and regard one another. Do you want to see justice in society? Do you want to see a lack of oppression? Do you want to see righteousness reign supreme? Then start with you and repent. Verses 12 to 13 talks about tax collectors. And John advises the tax collectors not to collect more than what they're due. This is how tax collectors worked in John the Baptist's time. The Romans would bid out contracts to collect taxes. So they would sell the right to collect taxes to a tax collector. But here's the catch. If the tax collector only collected what the Romans were due, the tax collector was left with zero profits. So as a result, any honest tax collector wouldn't be a tax collector for very long. Therefore, there was a huge incentive to shake down people and collect more than what they were owed. And John is now saying, with repentance in your heart, 
You only collect what is due and nothing more. But here's the catch. Even though tax collectors were despised, even though tax collectors were hated, even though people thought tax collectors was the devil's profession, John didn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. He told them to simply start acting differently in their job. Because here's the real-life application. We are not Christian as a function of our job title. We are Christians as a function of how we act in that job. There's no vocation that's more holy than another. What can be more holy is the person who fulfills that vocation. And because repentance is a lifestyle, make no mistake, repentance in the end is not going to make you sinless, is not going to make you without sin, but what it is going to do is make you sin less. Because repentance is a lifestyle. Final application. Repentance goes hand-in-hand with humility. Repentance goes hand-in-hand with humility. In verse 15, people began to wonder, hey, is this guy John, is he the Messiah? Then John responds in verse 16 and says, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Remember at the top of the sermon I said, John the Baptist was the greatest human being that ever lived, and now the greatest human being ever is basically saying he's unfit to untie the sandal tongue of the Messiah. Because back then in Palestine, followers of a teacher didn't pay the teacher. They basically reciprocated or gave payment in the form of services, like housing their teacher, making them meals, giving them food. But untying the thong of the sandal was regarded as too lowly. It was regarded as something that only the lowliest of slaves would do. So the greatest human being in history is basically saying, I am unfit to even be a slave for the Messiah who is to come because repentance goes hand in hand with humility. Humility, beloved, doesn't mean you have low self-esteem, doesn't mean you have a low opinion of yourself, but repentance means the more and more you mature with God, the more and more you experience His glory, His majesty, His awesomeness, His splendor, His truth, His righteousness, and the more and more you begin to realize how small you are are in the presence of omnipotence. As James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. We stoop to conquer and we come in down low so God is the one who will pick us up. In the end, beloved, repentance goes hand-in-hand with humility. And in the end, 
We always fall short of what Christ deserves and no service done in the name, in the service of the Messiah is ever too lowly. The text ends in verse 17 where John says, the one who is to come, the Messiah Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The best John could do 2,000 years ago was warn. The best I could ever do is warn. The best any prophet of God could ever do is warn. But Jesus is the one who executes. Because repentance is also final. There are no do-overs. There are no restarts. There are no rewinds. And the bad news is, outside of Jesus Christ, no one stands a chance. That's the bad news. The good news is that those who do repent and find salvation in Christ Jesus are spared from the fate of the chaff. The good news is that Jesus is a seeking Savior, and he was, sinking, he was seeking long before you or I ever had an idea of what biblical repentance really is. God is the initiator and pursuer because eternity is at stake. So you're telling me, teacher, that eternity is at stake and the only thing I have to do is repent? Yes. It's just that simple. Because if you're prepared to meet Jesus, it's very simple. Then repent. So what shall we do now? What shall I do? What shall the world do? What shall the church do? Repent because everything is at stake. Repent because anything that actually matters is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us here today. We understand, O oh Lord, that your canon of Scripture contains the full volume of your truth. Sometimes, O oh Lord, that truth is comforting, and sometimes, O oh Lord, that truth is disruptive. But your truth, O oh Lord, is disruptive out of your love for us, which you have revealed for our long-term spiritual benefit. I pray, O oh Lord, Holy Spirit, that you take these words that you take these words and you convict those who you design for it to convict. That you take these words, O Lord, and you turn hearts and minds. You turn cold, stony hearts into warm hearts, O Lord, that delight after you. For we know, O Lord, that you and you alone are the one who turns hearts. You and you alone are the one who regenerates people. And you and you alone are the one who equips men, who equips women with the ability 
to call upon the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you will have mercy upon those who are yours, so your glory, so praise of you, so the whole cosmos will be filled by delightful, joyful servants of the Most High, calling upon the name of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.